Okay, I've got three o'clock on my clock. So first of all, welcome to this uh, ongoing meditation group uh, every Saturday afternoon, three o'clock. There is also at the same time a beginner's class, Introduction to Meditation. So this is the class for the experts, for the A-list meditation. Those are really that close to jhanas. <laughs> sort of. So anyway, uh, welcome everybody. Those who have come to the Introduction to Meditation class, again, that is in the room to my right. This is the ongoing class. The only difference is that because this is people who have already learned the basics of meditation, it means that I can just always say uh, some more deep things about meditation. One of the things which I like talking about is what happens when we let go, overcome, get beyond these things we call the five hindrances. It's a, a term used in meditation and it's a, a very important term. The five hindrances is what blocks you meditating deeply and enjoying the freedom of the mind. And it's nice to know the first of those hindrances is basically wanting. The second hindrance is like the negativity, the not wanting, trying to get rid of things. And it's because of those main two hindrances, wanting and basically not wanting, that we get this tiredness of the mind, the sloth and torpor. And because of sometimes you try and fight sloth and torpor, you end up getting restlessness. And the mind is never clear enough you know, to actually to know what we're really supposed to be doing. A lot of time people ask that question. Now, Chambaran, when you meditate, what do you do? And basically the answer is a very simple answer, but very accurate. I do nothing. I just sit here. Sit here and just watch, see what's going on. So when you want something, you tend to allow the mind to just wander off into the future. And there you have business to, you want to do things you want to achieve, or you have things you want to get rid of. Each one of those things is allowing the mind just to wander off somewhere. It's not really being here. And it also means there's work to be done. If you want something, you have to strive for it, work for it, go for it to get there. Want to get rid of something, again, that's more work. It's no wonder that the hindrance of tiredness comes up when you're meditating. It's very strange, but sometimes when people meditate, you know, they feel sleepy. Usually they don't feel sleepy. You know, they're going to the shopping center. How many of you, when you go to the shopping center, fall asleep? <laughs> How many of you, when you're sitting down, sort of, I don't know, Watching the TV, do you fall asleep? How many of you... It's really weird, isn't it? Because this happens on meditation retreats. They come and listen to a talk, or they come and do some meditation, they fall asleep. And then they complain when they go home, they can't fall asleep. They're awake all night. <laughs> yes, you can. Come on, no, no, you're a cousin of a monk. So you get the nice chair. <laughs> and 
We always like doing this. Anybody who is related to a monk always gets special privileges. It's kind of nice. I mean, anyway, you've done a lot of hard work for us with the um, cutting trees and stuff, so you deserve it. And what else now? Where was I supposed to be talking about something interesting? Yeah, so when these five hindrances are happening, that you know, we try and wonder why. Why are they happening? And one of the reasons why your mind gets tired and your body gets tired, and it's the obvious answer, because you work too much. You think too much, worry too much, plan too much, and even remember the past too much. I know that many people say, oh, Ajahn Brahm, you can't sort of suppress the past. But suppression is one thing, but letting it go is another thing. When you really let it go, it's like a big backpack full of heavy rocks, which you carry around with you day after day after day. You realize you can put it down, and you never need to pick it up again. It's a wonderful experience when you can really let go of the past. You know, if you want to carry anything about the past, why not carry the good stuff about the past? Can you do that? No. <laughs> we're weird human beings. What we carry around is all the mistakes in the past, all the negativity in the past, all the good stuff in the past. You know, we tend to just drop that. We do it totally the wrong way around. I remember years ago, I, I developed this simile of the photo album. Now, because I'm a monk, you go and visit other people's houses to do blessings and other things. And I always noticed when I went to people's houses, you saw pictures, you know, photographs, you know, their marriage, their holidays, sometimes when their kids, when they graduated from university. And I've never seen any photographs of people studying when they went to university. You never see them even doing the exams, sitting down and stressing out, writing out the answers. The only things you see in the photographs is actually when they have succeeded, when they're happy. It's the same when you see people like their marriage photographs. You never see the, the photographs of when they first met or when they've had their first argument. Or when they only have the successful photographs. And if you look in your photo albums, here's me sort of in Thailand or in Sri Lanka on holiday. Do you have any photographs of people going through their customs and say, sir, what's that you're holding? <laughs> have you ever noticed the photographs which we keep in the old photograph albums or on the, on the boards, they're always the very, very happy photographs. Why can't we do that with our mind? Only have the happy photographs in our mind and throughout all the, the ugly ones. I said this to a person, they were always sick, and said, why do you remember all the times you were sick? That's like putting all the photographs of you in the hospital bed, you being injected, you having all these you know, terrible uh, medicines you have to take. Why those are the only photographs people keep? You don't, do you, keep those photographs, except in your head. So we should, our mind should be like the photo album. Only the lovely, happy photographs. Sometimes people don't have photograph albums anymore, they keep them on their smartphones. And those phones are smart for that reason. 
You only keep the beautiful photographs on your smartphones. You delete anything which is out of focus or ugly. Have you ever taken a photograph or someone's taken a photograph of you in a hospital bed? <laughs> you know, one of the monks, it's because, actually not one of the monks, this was Venerable Chanda when she was here. She had an endoscopy and colonoscopy, I think they went from both ends. And because we knew the doctors, they gave her a copy of the, um, the video. Would you like to keep a copy of the video? Here's me inside <laughs> in my colon. <laughs> For her, it was really interesting. Why not? But no one does that, do they? They only have the photograph of when they're healed and they're happy. They come out of hospital and they're back to normal again. So why is it that in our life we do uh, in our iPhones, photograph albums, on the walls of our, our office. You know, if you're a professional like a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, you put all of your uh, qualifications, you know, on the, the wall of your office. You never have, here's a picture of me having to go to see my supervisor because I did a very bad report. So because we know in certain circumstances we can celebrate our beautiful photographs, why don't we do that with our mind as well? And only keep the beautiful memories, which inspire us, which uplift us. That's what photographs do in the book. So this is just a way of, instead of keeping the past, the bad stuff, we keep the positive stuff which happened to us. And that really inspires us, uplifts us. And we feel that we're not such as bad person as we thought we were. So that's just you know, one way of dealing with these kind of five hindrances. And what that does, it does not weigh us down. You know, we work too hard, as everybody knows. And we don't have to work so hard. You've got the work in your office, in your career. If you're a monk or a novice, whoever you are, that's hard work. But why do we always have to carry so many burdens at the same time? What meditation allows us to do is to let go of wanting anything. Let go of trying to get rid of things. So we're just here in this moment and we start to realize it's nowhere near as bad as we ever thought it was, just being here. In fact, it's a beautiful, quiet place. This hall here, I don't know if it's cool enough for you. I'm a monk, I was born in London. If I had the aircon controls now, I would turn it down to about 18 degrees. And then I'd be, oh, this is just about nice. I wouldn't freeze because I like the cold temperatures. But many of you would actually look for the nearest blanket <laughs> and put that on. It's just our different tendencies. This is not a perfect room, but it's more than good enough. I never look at the faults in this room. Instead, I just value the comfort which is already here, which means I just allow it to be. It's good enough. And because it's good enough, my mind doesn't have to work or plan 
or think, how am I going to get rid of this? It allows things to be. And after a short while, because you know, my mind becomes peaceful, it builds up its energy, it's not tired. It's just like your body, your brain has a certain input of energy. And if you don't waste that energy, the energy kind of builds up. You get um, energized, awake, enlivened, in a really good energy. And that means the sloth and torpor, the tiredness, it just is not there. And the you know, restlessness, we're in the habit of doing things. It becomes almost just the character of the mind always to think of what to do next. And sometimes if it has nothing important to do, it makes up things to do. I've seen that myself. It's like in the old days, I remember seeing this when I visited people's houses. When they come home, they just look at the TV screen. And they, I think the surf, the different stations, just looking for anything just to take their mind off this moment. Because they were just very tired and they didn't know how to deal with just doing nothing, resting, and letting the energies come back into your mind. So that's the same what we do in our mind, often when we meditate. We just look through our categories of stuff to entertain ourselves. Fantasies, memories, uh, plans for the future, anything, or philosophies, anything to try and interest ourselves. But instead of doing that, here in this meditation, we learn just how to keep things still. Stay in this moment. It may feel unpleasant at the beginning because you're tired. But it's amazing when I say how I meditate, I don't do anything. I just sit here. After a while, the energies come back. I always love this about the Saturday afternoon meditation. For the last, I don't know how many Saturdays which I've taught here, you always feel, yeah, I'm not really that energetic when you begin the meditation. But after 45 minutes, I've always felt empowered, energized, like you charged up your batteries again, and you can actually answer any question which comes at the end of the meditation. This is what happens when you learn how to be still. You get that inner energy coming up. It's not restless energy. It's energy which you can focus, almost you can guide. It's not all over the place. And so this is how those five hindrances start to disappear. And I said you feel at the end you can do almost anything. That's what it feels like in meditation. You know how to make peace, be kind, be gentle in your meditation. If there's anything disturbing you, I'll let it go, I'll do it later. Any business from the past, oh yeah, but you know, so many other good things happened in the past and the past is gone right now. Right now, I'm just going to be here and be at peace with what, what I'm experiencing. Be kind to it. It's amazing how that empowers this meditation and the mindfulness becomes really strong and you can sit and just watch first of all the body and it relaxes then the mind and it relaxes then usually the breath comes up and that relaxes then you get some amazing meditations 
when you get to those amazing meditations, that's what I really love when I hear people ask the questions about this sort of incredible nimittas, beautiful lights in the mind, associated with enormous energy and happiness and joy. And it lasts afterwards when you come out of the meditation. It's like you walk out of here walking on air. And one of the stories I love telling, just to finish off, is that sometimes uh, when you teach meditation and people get very deep, you know, sometimes they get so deep that afterwards, you know, they come up and they're not asking about any sort of worldly problems in their life. I remember this one lady on a retreat in Thailand years ago. She came up to me, I was sitting on a chair, she was on her, her knees with her hands up to me and saying, oh, oh, oh. Ajahn, Ajahn Brahm, oh, at last, I had a really nice meditation and it was like someone had just fallen in love. They were just like a little girl, even though they were, you know, quite old by this time. Oh, Ajahn Brahm, and I just love that sort of, that joy, that sort of focus, beauty of their experience. And it just was showing just what these meditations can do. Beautiful energy, beautiful happiness, beautiful joy. And of course, that's what happens. If you sit there, follow the instructions, let go, allow those five hindrances to disappear, and just make peace, be kind, and be gentle. And that happens a few times. It's also happened to when I was in Penang. That was in December. One person came in and that's how they behaved too. Had a nice deep meditation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's what I hope for you. Okay? So that's just to get you interested at the beginning of the meditation rather than being bored. So okay, let's get started. And again, I have to always say, this is the ongoing class in meditation. Those of you who come for the first time, that class is to my right. This is the ongoing. Okay, I think he's just going to toilet. Ron has been here for years. <laughs> so, first of all, be kind enough to your body to make it comfortable have a happy body, and that allows for a happy mind. When my body, I think it's relaxed. In the old days, I just look at my body quickly and think, oh, this is good enough and then go on to meditate. But then I realize that's not good enough. I pay more attention, more time, to relaxing my body. Starting with my feet. How are you mindful of your feet? 
my little way, which you've heard every time I teach this meditation, is to ask. Ask my feet, how are you? Just like the same way you may ask me, Ajahn Brahm, how are you feeling today? And I give you as honest answers as I can. So when I ask my feet, how are you? They tell me. And I have awareness of my feet. I'm mindful of them. It's like I'm connecting my mind and my feet. Because I close my eyes and I'm sitting safely with nothing else to do, my awareness of the feet can actually grow. That's not disturbed by other things which I'm supposed to be doing. And that awareness grows. At first I'm just generally aware of my feet. And then I can start really feeling them. Especially on the surface of my feet. Feel my heels, my uppers, soles of the feet, and the toes. It's a special experience, feet feeling, I call it. It's different than when I feel the, the calves of my feet or my knees or anything. This particular feeling is only located to my feet. And the purpose of this act of awareness is to ensure that every part of my foot on both sides is comfortable, is relaxed. And I don't rush it, even though I've been meditating for so many years. I make sure that I know all the feelings in the feet and the feet are relaxed and comfortable. I know that physical comfort has a certain um, feeling about it which tells me it's really comfortable. And I enjoy that feeling. I enjoy it enough that my mind doesn't wander off. It's a pleasant abiding. And I know that I'm being mindful and kind. The two qualities which I build up at the beginning of meditation. Mindfulness and kindness. And when the feet are relaxed enough, and I can know that. Today I'm actually spending extra time on my feet. They kind of tell me that I need them. I need to spend extra time. But then I would move up to my ankles and practice the same way. Be aware of any feelings in the ankles of both legs. Be aware of them long enough I can feel it honestly, truthfully. Once I have the awareness of those feelings in the ankles, it's so easy to relax everything. And how this works is the mindfulness gives you the opportunity to have feedback. And I can see that you know, when I do 
just a feeling of letting go or kindness or gentleness. It's just those muscles relax. I can feel them relaxing. It's the feedback which tells me I'm going in, in the correct direction. And that's how I learned to relax those ankles as much as I can. And then I move up to the, the lower legs, the calves, and also the skin around those lower legs. Anything else which I can pick up there. It's just the mind is feeling that area, no other area. I can feel the lower legs a bit sort of tight. You know, we go for the walk, the arms round in the morning. Sometimes those legs get a bit tired. I can feel they haven't relaxed properly yet from this morning. So I know them. And little by little, I relax all the feelings in the muscles in the back of my lower legs. It's wonderful, you can do this very easily. Those muscles get more and more comfortable. Until I don't think I can relax those muscles anymore. They're really kind of ultra relaxed. So I move to my knees. Those knees, they are relaxed today. But nevertheless, I will always be with them, caring for them. And as I care for them, I notice in the right knee, there's some tightness there. So I just focus on that part of my body. Give it kindness. And I do some kind of visualizations. I imagine my right knee just sinking sinking into this warm water. It feels safe. It can relax. It's like part of the, the knees can like open up. It allows things to flow through them. And now that my right knee feels more relaxed than my left knee, so I'll relax my left knee a bit more too. You can feel what relaxation is like. You get to know it. You get to be wise about how a part of your body can be relaxed so deeply. And from there you go up your thighs. My thighs you know, don't give me too much trouble. Maybe that's because I don't do enough exercise. I don't know, but they feel okay. And I relax as I sweep my attention from my knees up my thighs to my butt. When I get to my bottom, there is the old feeling of pressure of a body on top of the cushion. And I know what my job is. It's not to get rid of that feeling, that's too much negativity. That feeling doesn't just disappear. There's a cause to it. 
All I do is make it as even as possible. And then I know that that's the best I can do. Because it doesn't change, it disappears. The other thing to know about relaxation, there are some feelings in the body which are always there. But as long as they're comfortable enough, after a while, the feeling vanishes. The brain can only know things which change. It's always the same, they soon disappear. The next thing I do is focus on the waist. And as I focus on the waist, I usually pull my back up, straighten it. The waist feels much stronger. If you're on a chair, you can lean against the back of the chair if you wish. But as long as the waist is comfortable. And I feel my back just that part of my body, and it feels reasonably comfortable. No aches or pains there. So then I go back to the bottom of my torso, and I just scan my attention up my body, centimeter by centimeter. As I go up, I start feeling, especially my digestive tract, and my lower intestines, the colon. You can feel that, that's not at ease, my colon today. Don't know why. Had a good lunch today. But nevertheless, I can feel that it's usually hardly any feeling there at all in the afternoon. But today there is a bit of tightness. I recognize it, aware of it, and then I'm kind to it. And I know that just a little bit of kindness and that feeling will disappear. If you have fear or negativity, those sorts of feelings get more intense when you're kind to it, welcome it. I can feel those negative sensations getting less intense, even almost getting pleasurable right now. And it allows me to move further up my body. A problem has been solved. As I move up my body up through the intestines, I don't imagine the intestines, I don't know actually how they're positioned. I just notice any feelings or sensations as I scan my attention upwards. Until I get to what I can feel is my stomach. And as I'm aware of that, that seems to be in very relaxed right now. Hardly any feelings or sensations there at all. Just comfort.
I can always make that comfort a little bit more relaxed, which is what I do. And then from the comfort of my stomach, keep scanning upwards, get to my lungs. And feel them. Relax them. Move upwards towards the heart. I never tell the heart what to do. It's just reassuring it, I trust you. If you want to beat fast, you know why. If you want to beat slow, you know how. I try not to be a control freak but some like kind overseer. So that the whole body starts to relax very deeply. And then eventually I get up to my shoulders. How do you relax your shoulders? Again, sometimes I do a little visualization. Imagination, you might say. You're just imagining my both shoulders to these bunches of strings, one on either side of the spine. And often they're pulled apart, so they're stretched, they're under stress. So imagine loosening the tension on those bunches of strings. As I imagine loosening the tension, my mindfulness is clear enough that you know the tension is being loosened. By relaxing more, I do that as much as I can. So both shoulders are not being held tight, not being stressed, but are loose, relaxed at ease. And I know what that feels like. So I don't stop until I can notice that. And then I move my attention down the arms, both at the same time, it's not that hard. My upper arms, nicely relaxed. Elbows, they're happy. Forearms, no problem there. Wrists, they're at ease. And I get to the fingers on my hand. You know, sometimes I don't know how I miss this. My fingers are all over the place. So now I just move my hands slightly where my fingers feel comfortable. You don't have to follow some book. You can feel this for yourself. The usual place for me, which I often go to, is the right hand of the left hand, thumbs very slightly touching. 
and my fingers feel at ease there. Feel safe, comfortable. I know I won't need to move them until at the end of the meditation. So now I go back up to my shoulders to check they're still relaxed. And to my neck. And I often move my head from left to right, forward and backwards, to ensure I get the most comfortable position for my head on top of my neck. It's like balancing a ball on the top of a stick. And then lastly, I go to the front of my face. I kind of like doing this. Noticing the feelings in the muscles around my eyes, my nose and my mouth, and anywhere else which stands out. And relaxing all of those. If that is your intention, and you keep watching, you'll find it's not hard to achieve that goal. Muscles in the face are at ease. Uh, the eyes are closed, but not shut down tight. The mouth is closed, but not clamped down. Everything is loose and light and easy. I don't know many times people say that you should train your mind, train your body as if this was some kind of army camp. This is totally different, this is done with kindness. Kindness does not know fear. It does not have aims. It just has this giving comfort. And now it's comfort to your face. I'm always surprised at how much my face feels it's relaxing. Like parts of it were held tight or were stretched or squashed. Now everything is now loose and free. That feeling of freedom is so close to the feeling of relaxation. And then I become aware of my whole body sitting here. Check parts of it again. <laughs> I was kind of correct that some of my lower intestines, upper colon, is a bit stressed. But that's not too bad. And it will probably disappear by itself soon. But my body is pretty at ease. And that does have a beautiful feeling to it. I enjoy the result of a relaxed body. And it gives me pity sukha, joy. It's a wonderful thing to start the meditation with. 
as I move to my mind, different than the body, I was just observing the feeling of the body. Now I'm going on to the nature of my mind right now, how it feels. And I always found that the best place to start, how peaceful do I feel? Peace has a quality which you could get to know very well. You can know when you're really peaceful. You can know when you're not. You can know how peaceful you are, how deep is that peace? And how solid is it? So I know how peaceful I am right now. Just like I know how relaxed my body was. I also know how to relax it even further. You learn in meditation what this peace feels like and how to deepen that experience of peace. How to make it more stable, more delightful. I mentioned delightful because once you start seeing peace as so delightful, so beautiful, so refreshing. Then it stays and gets deeper. The enjoyment of it stabilizes it. Enjoyment of moments of peace. And as I notice moments of peace, you know the cause of them. It is right now, this is the only time you feel peace. You don't need to do anything or get rid of anything to experience peace. It's right here. Just look, feel in this very moment and you can notice peace. And you soon learn how it grows really strong And how the peace gets so, <laughs> so still. You don't need the disturbance of thought and names. You don't need to take notes or remember anything. Because the memory becomes automatic. You don't do anything. Just enjoy the experience of peace in your own mind. Real peace, true peace. And see how deep it can get. And it's quite beautiful that you know you can experience things without needing to give it a name without needing to make a report about it. You just know. Easy. And then usually, you start to become aware of your breathing. Just this breath going in. Space between the breath going in and the breath going out.
feel the breath going out. You don't tell it what to do. Just like watching, just like watching the waves on the shore ebbing away and then coming in really calmly, beautifully. And soon the beauty of the breath is delightfulness. The fact that's all you have to do. It's what a holiday is supposed to do. Give you a rest, a break from all the work. This is a real holiday. Your mind doesn't have to do anything, no planning, no figuring out the past. All those words just vanishing. You just know in peace and silence. I'm going to have to be quiet now. When I start speaking again, I'll be close to the end of the meditation.
That's getting close to the end of the meditation. How peaceful are you right now? What does that peace feel like? Did you manage to see any lights in the mind, nimittas? Or just satisfied the breath was very beautiful? What does peace feel like? And as you start to prepare to come out from the meditation, how does your body feel now? 45 minutes of just sitting still. The body feels so relaxed. So these. I'm now going to ring the gong three times. Please listen. When the last ringing of the gong vanishes, let that be the signal for you to open your eyes. There are some questions from the internet, first of all. I like doing the internet questions first, because I hope everyone here was very peaceful. It gets time for your brain to start formulating questions again. Excellent. Thank you. So the first question from Edie. Dear Ajahn, what do we do with good childhood memories and feeling that came with them appear during meditation? This being a bit joy but sadness because the past can't be repeated again. I always know the past can't be repeated again, but it sometimes can be experienced even better. You know, sometimes when you go to funeral services, I go to funeral services a lot, and then sometimes we do things like sharing of merits, a Buddhist custom. And I always just remember some of the times with my own father or mother or, or grandparents. I remember those memories and that kind of inspires me. I don't ever expect them you know, to uh, have to repeat those. I expect to better them. 
and you know each one of you, which I've known for a long time, you know, like you're my family, and I always like to just uh, recall some of the beautiful things which we have shared over these years, childhood memories. Just they don't really um, count them as childhood memories. They're just beautiful memories, and they can be experiencing them with other people, with other times, even more better. So I use them as learning and repeat them. This one is from Poland. Do negative thoughts towards other people cause sankara? How to prevent and how to deal with it? This person obviously is coming from the Vipassana tradition. They have another idea about sankara. And it's not really the understanding of sankara I have. To me, the word sankara means like, you know, the will, what you're actually um, pointing to. And negative thoughts to other people. You might not sort of talk about things like sankara, but you can talk about suffering. Of course they create suffering. And sometimes I've had negative thoughts to other people years and years ago, which were totally unjustified. I was telling one of the monks a day or two ago that after one range retreat, I think my f second range retreat in Thailand, at the end of the retreat there was another Westerner with me. We sat down at a table and we said, he said to me, he said, what do you really think of me? And you know, after three months of living with this guy, I gave my thoughts and he was gobsmacked. He said, how you think of me and now how I think you think of me are totally different. It was my, my nature. I just let go of negativity so quickly. And I remembered all the wonderful things which we shared during that range retreat. And then I said, what do you think of me? What he thought of me was not how I thought of me. I was much more negative towards myself than he was. And so sometimes that the thoughts we have towards other people, it kind of reinforced to me that how I think of other people is not really accurate. So instead I just, I made sure that how whatever I thought of other people would always be remembering their good qualities. So the negative thoughts to other people just kind of disappeared, whoever they were. And to prove that, I did all these experiments, because you know, I was a scientist. You know, one of those experiments was in the first or second book which I wrote, I included a poem about how you should respect your mother no matter how, when she, especially when she's very old, no matter how many times she demands something, you know, try to give it to her, to help her. Because you know, the time will come when your mother passes away, you can't see her anymore. And if you, you know, didn't look after her and care for her as much as you could, you will regret that. When your mother dies, you know, you regret it and it can't be um, changed. It's a very beautiful poem, but the reason I included it in my book, with permission, was because of its author. The author's name was Mr. Adolf Hitler. It was one of Hitler's poems. And it kind of shocked people. 
It shocked me when I first read this. A very, very beautiful poem, which I loved. So the way we think about others, you know, how accurate is it? Then it's another thing which I did. There's you no know, one of these amazing people who I meet, especially when I went over to uh, teach in prisons. And this particular fellow, this was the story when we were holding a meditation retreat. And the, um, the cooks of that retreat, which usually Bianca, she was an amazing cook, she worked so hard. But her partner, Ron, Ron Battersby, had just developed a serious disease, I think it was lymphoma or something. And he really needed all of her, his, <laughs> sorry, all of his partner's assistance. So she could not be the cook for my retreat. So I asked around, I found this other gentleman. And he could do the cooking, and he was so brilliant as a cook. You know, he just did, what I always remember, you always remember something which they did. And he would cook these pizzas. You know, starting with just flour, I wouldn't get them out of a box. Totally handmade. And they're absolutely delicious. And that, that was what I remember, but he just gets such beautiful food for everybody. He was such a kind man and was always smiling and helpful. Anyone who needed anything special, he could do that. He worked so hard, mostly by himself. And <sighs> at the end of the retreat, you know, when we spread loving kindness to everybody, people ask, where is he? You know, we'd like to thank him. He did it all for free. You know, we wanted to serve even like, have a bit of a collection for him, just to say thank you. And I said, well, he can't be here this afternoon because he's gone back to prison. He was a prisoner there. He was on this eight or nine days work release. And I said, what did he do? He said he was in there for rape. And you could feel people's <laughs> Shock. They, they, they knew him now. They trusted him as I trusted him, 100%. That was Carl. He was a brilliant man. And I just wanted to say how we think of others with negativity. He did that terrible, terrible crime when he was very young, under drugs. You know, he was a beautiful man after that and you know, trusted him, and he lived up to that trust. That was one of the best teachings at that retreat, because of some terrible thing you did when you were young. And should you really be called a rapist afterwards, when he's gone way past that? And that was a marvelous teaching, which everybody at that retreat understood. They were kind of shocked at the end. Where is he? Well, he's back down the road in Carnet Prison Farm. He's a man I could trust 100%. So, negative thoughts. I was teaching you, please don't have those negative thoughts. Sometimes you judge people too quickly. And I'll see a question from Anna. Clarify the role of kindness in daily practice and meditation. The Buddha framed the practice in terms of avoiding ill will, etc. And there is matter. 
Is there benefit to integrate it throughout? Of course there is. That's why I put these words in front here. Make peace, be kind, be gentle. That's a decent translation of the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And this is uh, the Eightfold Path. This is part of all the practices which we do. The practice of virtue, right speech, right action, right livelihood with that kindness, with our meditation. And when you add that kindness into the meditation, oh my goodness, the meditation starts to take off. You can't expect meditation to be cold. If you want to do mindfulness training cold, then go and join the military or something. You know, do some exercises in mindfulness in North Korea. But this is like the beautiful part of the meditation. And when you're kind in your meditation, you find it's easy to maintain awareness. You know that little cat? I don't know where it is today, but we find it has got an owner, but the owner lets it sort of come here whenever it wants. And it's lovely to have a little cat around. It gets that kindness, that softness. And that kindness and softness makes the meditation so much easier. So please, get the kindness going in meditation. And then you enjoy being here. When you enjoy being here, the mind doesn't want to wander off. It loves just being still. When it's nice and still, then of course the mind really takes off. It is beautiful happiness and joy. And one thing which I always found interesting, when you get into these deep states of meditation, we start to bliss out. Oh, strong, loving kindness. And of course the answer is there is no difference. You can look at it one way and it's just the most purest form of love you've ever experienced. So joyful, so gorgeous and so attractive. Or you can look at it as just blissing out. Those two just merge together. Kindness is important. And especially in meditation, you're so kind to yourself. You forgive everything. You let go of everything. And you feel incredible peace and stillness. And afterwards, when you come out of those deep meditations, there's no way you can have ill will. You know that sometimes that's, I'll tell you all my tricks. Sometimes that's how I test if a person's had good deep meditation. So you know, you come up to me and say, Jim Bum had this really deep meditation, blissing out. And I look at you and said, no, I'm sorry, but you know, Caucasian men of your age can't get deep meditation. <laughs> and I look for how you respond. If I can see any type of negativity there at all, I say, what? You've got no right to say that. That's discriminatory. <laughs> then I know it wasn't a deep meditation. If you just look at me and say, okay, you don't mind. Then I know that probably was a nice meditation. Well done. <laughs> Please excuse me for doing tricks like that, but I've got to see if I can upset you any way at all. 
And if you do get upset, that wasn't a good meditation. After deep meditation, you can't get upset for hours, sometimes weeks. You just, you're just flying through the sky almost, like in your mind, enjoying every moment. That's a beautiful understanding of what deep meditation does. <laughs> and it's gorgeous. Okay, so that kindness, that's actually just how it becomes natural. And it's also important. Okay, so any questions from the audience here? From you guys? Okay, gonna get the if you have a question please put your hand up. So that poor old Bill. How old are you now, Bill? There you go, you have to run around all over the place for people. <laughs> Very kind of him. Yeah. Hello, it's an honor to talk to you. you, want um, to you my question is, if you're dealing with how to deal with intense pain. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, okay. How to deal with intense pain. Now I've been teaching for so many years now, and it was when we first moved from our city center in North Perth to this center, we just had our community hall, and this event happened over there. There was this guy who came up to see me, and he said, with a big smile on his face, I remember exactly what he said because it was a very powerful experience. He said, I finally managed to do it. And I looked at him, he was very strong, very blissful. I said, what? You know, to get the, the line straight on the machine. And I said, oh, you've got the ECG straight. No, I did that weeks ago. The EEG. Through his meditation, he could not only sort of calm his heartbeat to it was not recognizable on the screen, but also his brain activity, flat line, but being perfectly awake, perfectly mindful at the time. And he said to me, so you see all those people on the back, you haven't seen them here before. They're the people from the Osborne Park Pain Clinic. And they're finding out what the heck's going on in this place. Because he said he was one of the few people, about seven or eight people at that time, in Western Australia who were legally allowed to take any drug, any drug at all, to try, because their pain was just so off the scale. He said you know, they could do a CT scan of them and they could sh prove the kind of pain they were feeling 24-7 was the same as if you are having your arm cut off with a saw, with no anaesthetic. And just sometimes I think of that, wow. And he said that's the pain he was experiencing continually. He said he came to learn meditation because he had to. And because of that incentive, he said it was amazing just how he could get into these incredibly deep states of meditation. And from there, you know, that's you know, how he learned about pain and ability to let it go. And I talk about another person who many of you know more clearly 
because his ashes are around the back here, right behind me now. That was Ron's story. He was in the um, the UK military before he came to Australia. And he was a staff sergeant. And he told me when he went on exercises at that time in Germany, you know, post-Second World War, and he said that he'd always suffer from migraines, very painful migraines. And he said whenever he could, you know, he would actually find the nearest dark place. He mentioned one occasion, he was with some troops, they had a tea break, British Army, and so he went into a nearby barn, told his other soldiers, I'm just going into the barn, and he would, didn't know anything about Buddhism, but he would sit down as comfortably as he could, and go, he said, just go inside, deep inside to where the pain of the migraine couldn't reach him. And then on one occasion, which proves to me that he was getting into these jhanas, he said, uh, the uh, big high command told them, move quickly now. And so they moved, they went into their truck, and they were you know, a mile down the road, and then they said, we forgot about our, our um, warrant officer, you know, Rons. And so they turned around, and they realized he'd gone into the barn because he was experiencing a migraine. And these were British soldiers. They literally picked him up, and they took him to the, the, uh, the lorry, the truck, and put him down inside the truck. And he said he never realized he was being picked up. This was by soldiers. Soldiers aren't the, the softest of people. They picked him up and dumped him in the back of the truck and drove on. And he came out of his deep state of peace inside the truck. How did I get in here? And during that time, he was very peaceful and joyful. And I remember he said, Later on, he overcame his migraine, which was wonderful to have no migraine anymore. But he said he also couldn't get into those deep meditations anymore either. <laughs> he sort of kind of missed them. But nevertheless, had intense pain and overcame them by just going deep inside. People have done that. But if you do that trying to get rid of the pain, it will get worse. If you do that, not trying to get rid of anything, not wanting anything, but just focusing in, 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 and see what happens. Other people have overcome the difficulties. Okay, you're announcing the, what is it tonight, this afternoon? Is it KFC or Be Quiet? Just whispering, I'll go last. Kalyana Friendship Group is on at five o'clock. The Davis have answered my call, and I have some friends. And Ruben is going to be coordinating the group tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Excellent. we're Thank sharing you. the love around. Great. And um, yeah, please come along. So this is the all ages group. It's a really lovely group of people. Had a huge turnout last time. Great, great. yarns, great stories. Oh, and um, if you have the chance, we are reading through Ajahn Brahmali's Flowing to Freedom book. So if you haven't got it and you want to get it, it's right there. 
Because I lost my copy. Oh, okay. It's so good someone took off with it. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Marvellous. Are you accusing Colin? Ah. <laughs> 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 no. Okay. Yeah. You know what he does, you know, with these books? They were printed over in uh, Hong Kong. And I know that they were supposed to uh, reimburse one of the tickets, which I, I've got actually to go over there next m on, in March, I think. I said, no, no, just use it to do the printing costs of the book and the sending of the costs. So this is all done by donations, even the printing of it. Actually, my mind doesn't get any money out of this. But what we are doing, that any books which are bought, you know, from Ajahn Vamadi's books, they're going to the, the monastery in Sydney. That's Venerable Karunika's monastery. Because they needed to, you know, get a, another, uh, what's it called, house. You know, in Sydney, the monastery is in Santi. Beautiful monastery out in the bush. And uh, that's in Bandanoon, the monastery. But they need a place closer into town, so that if anyone does any teaching over there, they've got a place to stay overnight. And so it's just getting these things started, you know, for, for nuns, bhikkhunis. Monks usually don't have much trouble sort of getting funds for these things, you know, for their houses and monasteries, but this is actually for the bhikkhunis over there. So it's a beautiful course. How much does the book cost? But you can always give more. In other words, it's just like a gesture of support. You know, for, you've seen Venal Karunika. If any of you have been over to Dharmasara, she basically just was the nun in charge of all those buildings and the road. So she worked her, her butt off. I always like to check when people just do so much work. I look at them from the back and see how much butt is left. I think she's recovered now. <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, for Santi Monastery. Okay. So now oh, I've got another question there. Oh, me again, isn't Brahm? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ajahn Brahm, there's no doubt, you know, the peace, you know, and the benefits we get from meditation that is enormous, okay? Yeah. How oh, about... No, I disagree with you. It's bigger than enormous. I know. <laughs> How about the, the peace, the happiness we get from giving, you know, like kindness, helping people, you know? So the, what, what proportion, will you, is there any proportion, or what, like 70, 30, or anything, or what, to make it the whole package more effective? A thousand percent. <laughs> In other words, you can't undervalue it. All the times that people give something, sometimes I've got to restrain them. It's, it's actually part of our rules in the Vinaya. If you see people giving too much as a monk, you say, look, hold back a bit, please. For two reasons. We don't want you to be living a difficult life because you can't pay your bills. And number two, we want to give the opportunity for other people also to help. So, you know, sometimes you know some very wealthy people, they just want to, okay, I'm, I'm supporting this. I said, no. 
let other people have the opportunity to, because the opportunity is so valuable. We want to share it with lots and lots and lots of people. But Adam Brahm, surely, isn't it? If you if you even you're poor, you know, you give it wholeheartedly, you know, you know, with with your yeah. good gesture, you know. Oh yeah. Obviously, there'll be benefits too, isn't it? Okay, incredible benefits, yeah. but also, I have to make sure that I give them the opportunity to be able to live reasonably comfortable, to be able to buy enough food and pay their bills. The last thing I ever want to see anyone for you to give you know, a lot of donations to somebody and then get kicked out of your house. There's no way I will ever allow that. That's one of the rules. Mm. If you find a person, they say their faith is increasing, but their resources are diminishing. Say, monks, you have a look out for those people. You say, don't have to give too much. Just give a little bit. Yeah. No, sorry, Ajahn Brahm, sorry. It's not only giving, you know, like yeah. ac acts of kindness, you know, like oh, you speak, yeah. for, for example, you, you're giving talks, you, you're, you're doing your, you yeah. know, to people, you're giving to all these things. Yeah. Those acts of kindness, and your resources don't diminish. You know, when you, you know, just do some sweeping in the morning, or you just um, volunteers, uh, the KFC coordinator. <laughs> that doesn't cost you money, but it creates a lot of help and beautiful happiness. There's so many different ways of giving. And sometimes just giving the people a smile as you go out. Mm. All those little things, they don't cost any money. They have huge, re huge rewards. Little investment, maximum returns. Okay, so now people are leaving anyway. So let's pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And then those who want to stay a bit longer to go to the KFC group, it's much, much recommended. Very funny. <laughs> 